My name is Carla and this is The Plodcast. Hey everybody and welcome to The Plodcast. We'll be taking a journey through some of Victoria's greatest war stories from the police veterans who live them and those who support them. The Plodcast is a new initiative from Police Veterans Victoria. We're a not-for-profit that provides mental health support for police veterans and their families, something that's never been attempted in Australia until now. Today I'll be joined by John Stubbs, though everyone around here just knows him as Stubbsy. He's the cop with the gift of the gab. John, from humble country origins, cut his teeth at the Broadmeadows Police Station and quickly became known as the cop who could talk. Following a life in the job that he loved, John moved on to use his gift in real estate and would soon become one of PBD's most active advocates and veteran peer support officers. Division 4, a Crawford production. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Carla. Uh, so you're our first guest. Uh, this is uh, the first podcast for PBB, the podcast, I should say. It's all very exciting. Yes, very exciting. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking we would start right from the beginning. Um, you grew up as a country boy across Western Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania. Uh, you worked a few jobs before you joined the police family. What was that like? Well, that's that's tr- true. I, I sort of come from a bit different background to a lot of police. It wasn't a, a career I'd thought about even at all when I was young. Uh, my mum was a shearer's cook, dad was a shearer, they were drovers, they were kangaroo shooters, they, they were Western Queensland bushies to begin with and they, we travelled a lot from Western Queensland uh, in the outback through New South Wales to Tasmania, Victoria every year and we had a, uh, uh, we were constantly like living like gypsies basically. I was an only child. Anyway, uh, ultimately, uh, uh, that made me fairly self-resilient. But at the same time, we, we finished up in a place called Tulibuck in southern New South Wales. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was about, I think at that stage, I was about, oh, I left school at 15. So I left school at 15 and uh, went into state on my own, worked in a sawmill up in New South Wales, worked as a furniture removalist in Brisbane. Uh, I had my own semi-trailer business when I was 18 in, in Brisbane. I used to drive from Brisbane to Melbourne every week. Ultimately, I went and joined my parents in Tulibuck. Uh, in New South Wales on a small property. Anyway, uh, there was, wasn't much work, but you just took whatever work was going at the time. I, I picked onions, I picked grapes, I drove trucks and all sorts of... Anything that was going on there, because you had to at the time, there was no work. It was stinking hot, 40-degree heat. Anyway, I had a friend who joined the police force, and I hadn't even considered it. It was probably the last thing on my mind. Um, but I thought, anything's got to be better than working out in the dirt and the dust. Yeah. And, and particularly the 40-degree 40, 40 heat. So I applied. I had a girlfriend who was engaged at the time, so I thought I'd better get a decent job. So I applied, and you wouldn't believe it, I actually got in, I got accepted, so I was quite surprised. Mm-hmm. And I thought, even if they sack me, they've got to give me you know, a week's wages, because in those days, any job was, was, uh, was worthwhile. Mm. But I thought, a nice, clean job in a nice, air-conditioned building with clean clothes on, it couldn't get any better than that. Yeah, I remember the advertising at the time was um, yeah. really interesting. Well, that was 77. Now, I think they were on a bit of a recruitment drive at the time, like they mm. are now. Yeah. And coming from my background, as I said, I was surprised they accepted me. But I, I, thinking back on it, I think they accepted me because I'd, I'd left school at 15, I'd applied at 21, and I had a fair bit of outside worldly experience. So I assume that's why they took me. I don't know, to be mm. honest with you. 
Yeah, because I know they had some very strange, specific requirements. Um, they had height requirements at the time. Height was one. Yeah, well, I just got in. I, yeah. I'm five seven and a half. Yeah. Well, I don't know what is in the current money, but mm. I just got in. They had this thing like a guillotine, which would come down and touch <laughs> on the top of the head. It would measure your height. So I stretched my vertebrae as high <laughs> as I can. I stretched my neck as high as I could, and I just made. I think it was five seven. I might have been half an inch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got in, and then there was a, the hearing, the hearing test. There was an entrance exam. It was basically uh, spelling, uh, arithmetic, uh, punctuation. Can you write a sentence? Are you, you know, are you uh, able to, you know, put, put a document together? Mm. That wasn't too bad. Um, the hearing test. I, I, the guy whispered in my ear. That was the hearing test. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he, he whispered a number. Let's say Saucy. it was fifteen or something like that. And I said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "Fifteen." Oh, okay. That, thank you. That's it. So I, got, I passed the hearing test. It's weirdly intimate. <laughs> well, it was, but you know, you can imagine that. The, imagine these. Although they had a colourblind test as well. The colourblind test was a, a book, and I still think they still use it. And uh, they flip the pages over, and you have to pick out numbers in these in these books that uh, indicate uh, whether you're colourblind or not. So I passed that, obviously. Mm. And then uh, a few months passed. Got interviewed by the local police station sergeant up at Swan Hill at the time, and uh, waited. And next thing, I was accepted, and I got in. I joined the. I went into the academy in late nineteen seventy seven, mm. and uh, again, not thinking I'd even pass. I mm. think I, okay, I got, the way I saw it, I've got twenty weeks work here. This will be better than out in the fields, picking tomatoes and and picking grapes. So that was a, that was the the only way I looked at it. And uh, so once I got there, I couldn't believe that police academy. It was the most amazing building I've ever seen. Have you it hasn't been there? changed much. Yeah. Oh, no, it's actually, <laughs> it was the most, um, they just bought it. Still it still is. Yeah, yeah. It, it still is. It's on the top of a hill. And I'm driving along, along Viewmount Road in my panel van I had at the time. And I'm looking for this police academy. I had the, the, the street number. And I thought, where is it? I'm looking across this. I look across, it can't be that building there. It's, and I looked back and that's the street number, Victorian Police Academy. Mm. Oh, my God, this is so intimidating. Yeah. Oh, and I ter- was People terrified. People doing the march. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but then I walked in, in the front foyer, and there's a whole group of other guys there who, as it turned out, to, were my future squad mates. Mm. And so we all said hello to each other. And down the hall walks our law instructor, who basically guides you right through the whole process, uh, the whole time you're at the academy. And that's how, we, how it started. So... Mm. Because I was, I was a country boy, I didn't live in Melbourne, I was required to live in the academy, as were most of the other guys at the time as well. So the married guys could live out. There weren't many of those. And uh, so they roomed, we had a, had a roommate. It was just like being in the army. You know, mm. They'd wake you up at, I can't remember now, it might have been six o'clock, with a bell, bring the bloke walking down the highway. So it's more like the army and not a frat More like the army, yeah. Yeah, 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 not a frat, exactly. But then again, we had a few, we used to sneak a few beers in and things like that. So it's a a bit of both. You were allowed two cans of beer a night or a day. And uh, uh, what would happen is uh, you'd have to sign out for them and you'd have your two cans. And then there was was, uh, a couple of guys in the squad that didn't drink. So we'd sign theirs out as well. uh, Anyway, that, that was how we got in there. And then the camaraderie started with your squad mates. You become feeling like you're as part of a special group, which I didn't anticipate. Mm. Uh, so that's how I lived in. Um, used to go home to Tullybuck on weekends. I'd drive home Friday night, which is about a four-hour drive, and drive back on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. But while I was at the academy, inter- interestingly, uh, I, I used to live in on th- some weekends, not all weekends, 
And in those days in the seventies, the hair, everybody's hair was reasonably long. Even mine, when I joined, I, when I joined up the first day, I thought I'd cut a really short haircut. But it wasn't short enough for them. They give you a really short one, like, like a buzz cut. Like a buzz cut, and that yeah. was you stood out like a sore thumb in those days. Mm. So everybody would ask you, "What are you a policeman?" I used to say, "No, I'm in the army," uh, because if you're a policeman, they, they, you know, you might anything could happen. Uh, I wasn't really a policeman because I was still training. So I used to go out on weekends sometimes when I didn't go home and um, uh, met up with strangers in pubs and things like that, had a few big drinks. And on one occasion, we went back to one of their houses, which was in Paran, and it was a pretty rough place. And, and they're all looking at me because I've got this short haircut. And they're all saying, what are you... Are you You're a cop? Yeah. <laughs> so no, I'm in the army. And so everybody had a few drinks. Mm. Next thing you know, uh, they start talking about this armed robbery they committed. <laughs> exactly. And I'm only an academy student in about five or ten weeks. Uh, and I I'm, wish I didn't hear this. <laughs> and, I know, and I'm thinking, oh, I wish I didn't hear this. But then I thought, this is interesting. I'm, I'm actually going to be a policeman. I should be listening. And they told me all about it. And the girl was telling me. I think she was keen on me at the time. But anyway, she's saying, uh, not keen to stay, but keen you know, mm. to talk. Uh, and she said, well, what happened was I work in, I think it was Coles or someplace, some sort of supermarket. And my boyfriend come in and held up the supermarket. And I just gave him all the money. So it was a prearranged, a prearranged hold up. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So she, 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 theatrical. Yeah, it was it was prearranged. Uh, she was working there, so she just handed over the money and big smile on her face, and she told me all about it. So I went back to the academy on Monday and told the law instructor, Glenn Jolly was his name, and he said, "Oh, great!" And uh, so he, he, he reported, "Yeah, oh, well, we couldn't, but he he told the Pran CIB about it, which they had a report on it, mm. and she was, you know, traumatic. This girl when she was robbed, and she was saying how bad it was and all this sort of stuff." Anyway, they finished up charging her and the guy. So uh, that was basically like uh, unintentional undercover work. Yeah, unintentional. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, this is, this is interesting. Yeah. I've actually just done something. I've, I've solved a, an arm robbery. Yeah. Um, and there you go. So well, it might have been 10 weeks in the academy, I've, I've solved my first crime. And mm. I didn't even mean to do it. <laughs> but it actually, a few incidents happened like that later. Yeah. So that's, now I've got into it. I'm really enjoying it. I'm thinking, this is a great job. Mm. Um, I just passed academ- academically. Just got trolling. Mm. I think it might have been a 60% pass rate. I just might have got 65 in the 70s. They'd have, they'd have weekly exams. Yep. So anyway, got through that, graduated, and, and then... Uh, uh, and then it was, it was Broadmeadows. Broadmeadows was a training station. Yeah, what they did in those days, they'd send you to, to a training station for three months. And uh, that, again, was an experience. Because uh, in those days, it was a pretty wild place, Broadmeadows. There was a... Still is. Still is, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. Uh, there was a police station in Whitford Street, Broadmeadows, which is not no longer there, it's, and, but it's an, it was an old timber building uh, and really, really run down. But the guys who worked there were just so keen. They just wanted to basically catch crooks. Um, and, and Broadmeadows was full of pretty serious criminals in those days. So my first day in the job, I'm, I don't know what to do. They, you've got 20 weeks worth of training, they put a uniform on you, put a gun on you, and then you forget everything <laughs> because you're, just, you're so terrified. First day in the job, uh, they might have been, say, 7 o'clock start. About 10 o'clock, they said, come on, John, we're going to go raid a house. Oh, Christ, right? Yeah. That sounds pretty exciting. Uh, now, listen, when you, what, what I want you to do is just stand at the back. Anybody, they were joking, by the way. Anybody comes out the back, shoot them. And, but they were joking. But I took them seriously. But I didn't, I obviously didn't shoot anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I'm standing at the back of the house, and uh, they go through the front, and they get these people, and they charge them, and they come out later on, wave, come on, come in. 
And it wasn't until later I, uh, uh, I realised they were joking. That's how naive I was. Uh, I wonder what would have happened if you'd actually gone through with that. Well, um, I would have missed, probably. Yeah. But, but I would have been too terrified. But uh, I think they might have been just having a land of me anyway. And there was no chance of anybody coming up the back. I don't know to this day. That was 1977, 78, so I don't know. Maybe they were serious. I don't know. But mm. they were trying to... But anyway, later that day, I got three arrests. I didn't get them, but the other guys got them. And they gave them to me. And in case you don't know, that's actually... Um, they're doing me a favour. What mm. they're doing is, as a trainee... The more figures you can get uh, whilst you're at the training station, it makes you look good for your final report when you uh, get confirmed as a constable. So they gave me three arrests. They only shoplifters, and, but they were, they were things that they did all the paperwork for. So what I was really impressed with was all these guys, uh, <laughs> fabulous guys, you know, well-known guys later, um, were looking after me. And, and nobody's ever looked after me in a job before. They were really helpful, and not just me, the other guys as well. These guys, some guy, Bob Marmion was one. You might have heard of Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wayne Pinner, Steve Cody, Jeff Francis, uh, Ray Watson. All these guys went on to become quite uh, famous policemen. Uh, Brendan Bannon. Um, they all looked after me. So I was really impressed with it. I thought, gee, this is a, this is a great job. Mm. And next day they sent me down to the Broadbanner Shopping Centre on my own as, to do foot patrol. Yeah. <laughs> and they give you a radio and that's it. And I was terrified because we were in the Broadbanner Shopping Centre in those days. There were all these gangs and God knows what. They said, you'll be right. You know, just go and talk to the shopkeepers. No, you'll be okay. Mm. So I did. And I suppose what they were doing, they were trying to, to blood me early. In other words, just get yourself used to this stress because it was extremely stressful because you just don't know, you really don't know what to do. Uh, I suppose you would if something happened. You'd get on the radio and away you'd go. So getting through those, those um, trauma- oh, traumatic, fearful incidents early held you in good stead later because mm. I find I always found then for there, thereafter for something tough do it and you'll get used to doing it again and again and again rather than avoid it a lot of guys avoided tough, tough things mm. uh, uh, so yeah, it's getting exposed early getting exposed early was good yeah so talk me through when you got to the Broadmeadow CIB that's when mm. you got your first chief commissioner's commendation well that um, yeah well that's true uh I'll just clarify that a little. I, I, what happened was I went from Brook up the training station. They, they sent me back to Russell Street. Then you can then apply for, to get police station permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived at Russell Street actually. They, they had barracks there at the time. Uh, I applied. I was so naive. I, uh, there was a vacancy at Glenroy, which is next to Broadbenos, and I thought that'll be just the same as Broadbenos, Glenroy. Just really? I'll go back out there. So I got I got the vacancy, and I get to Broadbenos. Uh, sorry, to Glenroy. It's what they call a file station, which is good, but you're working alone a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And the responsibilities are, to go, they don't do it anymore, go and serve summonses, collect fines, take statements off people in your district. And you're working in, your, in a police car on your own quite often, but you've still got to do all this other general duty as well. Yeah, but not the fun, dangerous stuff. Yeah, no, well, you were on the van. It's not a 24-hour station, you, but you, you did work night shift occasionally. So it, and I'm, I was a bit disappointed. So I thought, bugger it, I'll, I'll make the most of it. And as I said, I, I was... One only, only child, so I was used to being on my own. I didn't mind working by myself. Mm. Uh, and it actually, that gave me a lot of resilience. So back to the, uh, I, I finished up getting a first accommodation there. That was, um, I got some information from a local resident who said there was a prison escapee in, uh, in one of the houses in Glen, Daly Street, Glenroy, I think it was. Uh, he would escape from Beechworth, I think, Beechworth Jail. Pretty dangerous guy. I didn't know what to do. So I went and spoke to my boss, Cole Bishop, great fellow, and he said, ring the major crime squad. 
and they'll take it over. So I did, and I got onto some great blokes at the major at all. Bernie, uh, Gordon Davey was a bloke I spoke to, and Bernie Elliott was another one. They come out and sat with me, and uh, I'm a junior constable, you know, first year in, and they, these big detectives from the major crime squad sitting down with me, and they wanted to know all about with who told you, what, uh, how good is he, is the information. Anyway, long story short, the major crimes court included me in everything they did after that, and uh, I, I was involved in a raid on the place when they got the guy, and uh, ultimately uh, Gordon Davey from the major crimes court put me in for accommodation, which I got, chief of commissioner's accommodation. That was pretty good for a bloke in his first year. Mm. And from that, then... I was selected from Glenroy because I used to work on my own a lot and with other guys. Mark Harris was another guy. He went to the armed robbery squad. Um, I used to do drug raids on my own, which is ridiculously stupid. Uh, you don't do that. But I just thought, well, you know, I know that. Because I, I, <laughs> I used to go and collect fines and things like that. So I, I took out a warrant to search this place for drugs. And sure enough, there's drugs. four or five people in there. Mm. <laughs> Take the... Anyway, it was very stupid. I wouldn't so do you it didn't again. have an issue going in on your own? I didn't. I was too stupid, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. I, I would now. Uh, I wouldn't. Ne- and later on in my career, I certainly wouldn't do it. Mm. But it was so dangerous. But uh, as it turned out, I was lucky. Uh, I, when I found the drugs and the people in there, I called up the broadband's van who come and help me. But Glenroy was good. I worked there uh, probably three years. I, uh, I got uh, accommodation. I got selected to work the district special duties from there. Uh, now, special duties is basically one uh, basic uh, group in a district who work basically undercover around the district on various things that you need undercover people for. And that was, you normally get selected those, for those tasks uh, because you're doing a good job. Mm. And I also, getting back to the CIB, I also got selected to work at the Broadmeadows CIB on a temporary basis. Uh, you put the suit on and all that sort of stuff, but you're not actually a detective, but you're there as an acting detective, and I got selected for that, which I was very grateful for. Mm. A detective called Wayne Pinner looked after me very well there, a lovely fellow. Mm. Um, back to uniform, back into the special duties. One, one incident uh, stood out. We, were, we went to a noisy party when it shouldn't have done it. should never send plain clothes guys to noisy parties. It, you, the uniform holds more power, mm. um, but we did. And, uh, Why would they send plain clothes to a party? It's well, it was just nobody else. It was there was about five or six calls on it, uh, and it was getting out of hand, and they couldn't get anybody to go. Broadmeadows van was tied up. Somebody else was tied up, and it was just getting. Uh. And, and the neighbours were kept calling, uh, so we went. Me and this other guy flashed the badge. We had the you know we just had our little batons at the time. Hmm. Told him to be quiet. Walked in. Was trying to find the the organiser of the party, and next thing you know, they turned on us and. Uh, me and Vic Little was his name. We got a hell of a flogging out of him. Um, I managed to grab one guy, held onto his shirt. I wouldn't let him go. And they were, they were bashing me with my baton, which was, as it turned out, <laughs> didn't hurt. Oh. <laughs> the, the, uh, well, the baton in those days was a little rubber one. Yeah. And it was uh, bang, 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 trying to break my grip. I wouldn't let, his, let him go. And uh, someone must have called for backup because uh, we didn't have radio. didn't have portable radios then. We had radios in the car. So... All of a sudden, in the distance, I could hear this siren coming. One little siren coming from the distance. And we're getting bashed, we're getting kicked, we're getting everything. I'm still hanging on to this guy. And uh, next thing you know, the siren gets louder and louder and louder. And I'll, uh, I'll never forget uh, this traffic operation guy working one up. Traffic, in the traffic operations group and the, the uniformed police and the CIB sort of all worked separately. And, but you looked after, you, you supported each other as you needed to. 
And here he is. He comes in with his bat and he's swinging like a Shane Warne with a cricket bat. He's just going <laughs> through the crowd. And he saved us, literally. He really did save us. Uh, and it was the greatest sound I've ever heard in my life. It was that traffic op- operations group fellow coming to save our lives, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of guys used to hang it on the, the traffic blokes, but I never would, and I never will would after that either. Mm-hmm. But anyway, went to hosp- we went to hospital and everything was okay. Mm-hmm. But never go in plain clothes again. Mm-hmm. So I stayed at Glenroy for a period of time, worked at special duties, got the commendation. We had another big bus there, which was, you wouldn't believe it, um, shoplifter. We used to, in those days, all the shop- shoplifters got charged with, with theft. Um, and I decided to take this one home. You often just bail them and let them go. I decided to take this one home, and you wouldn't believe it. The house was like an Aladdin's cave of stolen goods. <laughs> it was you walk down the corridor, and either side of the to the walls were, were to the ceiling to the wall to the floor was just stolen goods, stupid things like sheets and uh, pillowcases and toys and crap. Basically, it was a lady. Every room was chock-a-block full of stuff. The kitchen was chock-a-block full of stolen goods, all with the tags still on. And I suspect she must have had a mental problem. Uh, she just uh, a kleptomaniac, basically. Mm. And anyway, I called the CIB, and they, they finished up charging it. But, um, yeah, the, the Glenroy was good. I enjoyed it there. We worked at, Bro- at Broadie a lot as well. So following Broadie, uh, you're at the, the Carlton CIB? Yes. I got uh, Now, to get into the CIB, you had to perform well to be considered. So... I, in those days, the guys and myself, and we were almost competing against each other to go to calls, and you know, not not just your pissy calls, but you know, guys that are that are serious criminals, burglars and assailants and things like. And you had to get what they call figures. Figures means a lots of arrests. Um, uh, you didn't have to get them, but it was better if you did, sort of thing. Uh, There's no quotas or anything like that. It was stupid, but um, so got selected for the CIB, passed, and got a vacancy at a thing called. Well, that was before Carlton. I got. Uh, the thing called the Tactical Investigation Group, which was a task force group, and uh, uh, worked in there. Again, undercover work, um, working on some pretty heavy criminals from the time. And I can mention a couple of names because they're dead. Uh, Alphonse Gangitano, the Moran brothers. Yeah, uh, the Mafia. Yeah, that was, yeah, but they're in Carlton. Mm. Um, and we worked on it months and months and months and months. One was a solicitor, I can't tell you who his name is. Mm. One was a politician. Um, what I found with task force work, it was boring as dog shit, excuse me. Um, it was just so boring. And at the end of six months or 12 months, quite often you didn't even make an arrest. You just couldn't get enough evidence. And I was always of the opinion, just get in and, and, and let's see what we find. Kick the door in with a warrant and see what we find. And that was more effective. So from there, I went to Carlton CIB. Mm. Uh, which, again, was where, in those days, that was the 80s. Mm. There was no casino then, and what happened, what was happening was all along Ligon Street, on, usually on the second floor of all those buildings, there were all game, there was gambling going on. Uh, there was a strong need for uh, gambling. That was an outlet for all these people who wanted to get. And there was a lot of mafia connections, there was a lot of uh, uh, organised crime, Painters and dockers in those days were the big uh, groups. A lot of bank robberies as well, right? Bank robberies, yeah, a lot of bank robberies. Um, bank robbery in Ligon Street at the Commonwealth Bank uh, there I went to. Um, so what we did, we didn't necessarily charge them all all the time because before you knew where they were. So if you wanted to go and say, find I don't know, 
Alphonse Gangatana, you knew he'd be in such and such a shop playing cards. So you knew they were there. So you didn't bother him too much. If you needed to, you would. But uh, uh, Carlton was great because there was a lot of Italian community, a lot of fun, you know, a lot of food, a lot of, you know, Drinks mm. after work with fun, all those sorts of things. It was a good place to work. I would have loved to have seen Carlton in the 80s. Yeah, oh, yeah. it was wonderful. It was yeah. wonderful. And the, the people, the community, were wonderful. our parties were wonderful. We had a fabulous party. Mm. Um, and and uh, so when the casino happened, ironically, a lot of people don't appreciate this, it went, the whole place went dead because all the gambling then went to the casino. All the people who wanted to gamble, mm. cards, Baccarat, you know, uh, uh, you know, all those games, uh, all went to the and Carlton just died. All, yeah. It, it was amazing, really. It would have taken such a chunk out of its culture. Yeah, it was quite a shame. Yeah. So I, when I was at Carlton, I, uh, uh, I caught another escapee there. I didn't get accommodation, which I was spewing over. <laughs> there was an escapee there. Um, I hope it might boring you. I'll just I'll waffle on. You can cut out whatever you like. But uh, Dave McGowan and myself went to a job this morning as detectives, because I worked with Dave at Carlton CI. And... Uh, there was a, uh, it was just a burglary, no big deal. Go in there, have a look around. The burglary had occurred the night before and we, we, we went to investigate. So um, we go in, have a look. There's some fingerprints on the window. I say, Dave, could we, can you bring the powder over? Because we would put the fingerprint powder down and try and find the prints. And he goes to the car and there's no fingerprint powder. So I said, Dave, would you mind going back getting the powder and, and I'll keep looking around here. So Dave jumps in the car and goes back to the station. In the meantime, five minutes later, there's this huge car accident at the front of the house. And I'm like, oh, no, here I am. Um, the owner of the house says, you better come out here. There's a bloke out here with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked out, and across the road, there's a three-car accident. The, the front car, as I'll find out later, was a stolen car, and it was driven by a, a, a bloke called Barbaro, who was an escapee from Ararat Jail. And he's got a knife, and he's trying to take hostages. He's trying to... Because the people he crashed into were following him. It was their car he'd stolen, and he's got and he's and he's, they're trying to catch him and he's trying to stab them, and here I am the one policeman in the street. Dave's not there. I didn't have a gun. I've got a uniform. I haven't got a uniform. I've got a suit on. And a crappy little baton. A crap, <laughs> I didn't even have a baton. And I didn't even have a car. No radio, of course. There's no there was no radios. Mm. And so I pull out my badge. That's all I got. I said, stop, stop it, stop, police. You know. And I recognised him actually from Wanted List at the time, and uh, he stopped. He didn't believe me. I said. Uh, Manny was Emmanuel Butler. I call him Manny. Manny, stop. Put it down, put it down. And then he go, He realises I am a cop, so he starts to run off. He runs off towards uh, west. And all these people are looking at me, and I thought, I don't know, radio, I better do something. So I just fought, run, out, run after him. So, well, I don't know what to do because I can't get to him because he's got a knife. But I could, I've, I've got to keep up with him to try and catch him. So as I run off, I'm ready. Flashing my badge to these people, ring the police, ring the police. Anybody that would listen, someone <laughs> walking, their, someone woman, some woman walking their dog, ring the police. And I'm right chasing this guy. And every time I get close, he'd spin around with a knife and try and stab me with it. And it's by sort of back. I had plenty of room, so I backed off. And this happened for nearly a kilometre. Uh, I'm chasing over parks, down streets. And we eventually finish up down a laneway, and I thought, oh, here we go. Anyway, this guy comes along to help me, which was nice of him. He said, mate, I'm a karate expert. I can help you here. I said, no, <laughs> that's true. As we're running across the park, he said, mate, if you know, you're happy to help me. If, I'm happy for you to help me if you want, um, but just stay back. This bloke, you know, he's, he's a bit dangerous. Stay back. I'm a karate expert. Yeah, this is what he says. I, I can help you. Uh, anyway, uh, 
So we, we ch me and this guy chased this guy down a lane where it's a dead end lane. And anyway, Manny Barbero, his name, he spun, spins around with a knife and points it at us. And this guy, the karate expert, says, oh, look, I'll go and ring the police for you. <laughs> so he's done a runner. <laughs> so much for his karate. But anyway, so, uh, so it's a bit of a stalemate then. Uh, I'm staying there, he's staying there, and it's a dead end. So what he does, he jumps over a back fence into someone's yard. And I jump over following him. And we, we, it's a terrace house yard so they're really small yards um he runs in the back door i run in the back door we run th through the house and here's these people sitting having their breakfast <laughs> and they're looking up okay and i'm so, it's like a my, movie scene yeah, exactly i've got my badge ring the police ring the police <laughs> he stopped many stopped for a minute and uh, he, i thought he was going to take a hostage but he thankfully he didn't he stops and goes sorry for ruining breakfast <laughs> yeah and I, I said look just ring the police are you okay ring the police so I, right, we, he runs out the front of the house onto elgin street and then uh we run across the, I'd follow him across, run him across, we ran across to some commission flats and I, I back off a bit because I was, uh, I'd lost sight of him for a minute. So I lost him for about five minutes, then someone pointed to where he was in a, in a shed. And by this time, other police were coming and we, they were ringing the police and there's sirens everywhere and we caught him. But that was, that was one incident I remember from Carlton. Mm. Um, a few people have made, uh... This is, yeah, definitely a few people have made reference to the fact that you've got the gift of the gab. Um, why, why do people say that? Well, probably just for the last five minutes. I've been well, yeah. I haven't let you have a word in edgewise. So I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I don't, I've always been like that. I think originally, I think it comes back to my country upbringing. We had no electricity. There's no television, uh, even though there was television in the world, but we just didn't have it where I was. Mm. Um, and... Rural communities tend to talk a lot to each other. They gossip. They uh, they're not afraid. Little kids are not afraid to talk to adults. Adults are not afraid to talk to. That's just what I remember from being brought up in a rural community. Mm. Um, you tend to uh, just talk. Um, I don't know why. It's part I, of my nature. I remember it was John Sylvester that said uh, you are much better at persuading crooks than you are actually catching. Well, them. that's possibly true too. Uh, uh, well, yeah, everybody has their has their special talent. Special, because I wasn't that tall, I was working with a lot of big, strong, tough coppers. <laughs> and, you know, you only have to look at somebody like, uh, I don't know, a couple of guys that used to work with, Mark Christie was one. Uh, you only have to look at him and you'll confess straight away because mm. uh, he's so intimidating. Um, mm. He wouldn't, you know, he just looks like he could tear your head off. Um, I suppose I must have bored them to death, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Like, all right, I'll, I'll talk. Just stop talking. <laughs> Just stop talking. <laughs> I don't know. But it, but it is true. Uh, sometimes uh, you've got to use whatever skills you've got, whatever they might be, whether they work or they don't work. Mm. But uh, in my case, they work quite well. Yeah. Um, I always enjoyed teaching young constables how to do their job as well from my mistakes. Mm. So a lot of that was involved in, you know... I was and going undercover as well. Yeah, that was interesting. You, well, when you go to a pub and talking to crooks as an undercover guy. You're trying to elicit information, just might be irrelevant to a lot of things, but it might be important later. Mm. Uh, so you also got to listen, mm. which sometimes I don't do well. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk, but you have to listen as well. Did you find towing the line when you were going undercover, towing that line between uh, trying to do your job but also not trying to give yourself away? Yeah, uh, you, you, you really are. There's people better at undercover than I was. A bloke called Rob Robinson, he was amazing. Mm. Uh, Graham Henderson, fabulous blokes. But I was really an amateur, self-taught. Uh, but 
you, you're consciously, in my case, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. Mm. But they were these people weren't even considering that you might have been who you were. Uh, but you don't know that. You think they might. Um, yeah. and, and you sort of worry about that. So that might come through as nervousness as well. Uh, but you, you learn to sort of... Um, take a deep breath and relax and just be normal like you're having a pub, having a beer in a pub at, say, Swan mm. Hill or somewhere, like you're talking to someone that's just come off a farm and mm. you just talk about things like that and every now and then they'll pop something up. Mm. But I, I, another one I got, I solved a warehouse break-in again off. It was uh, off duty. I was down at the swimming pool. I don't know why. People talk to me. Um, this guy was saying to me, you want to buy an air conditioner? I said, not really, but uh, what, what have you got one of Because this is after talking to him for some time. Mm. Um, no, but uh, I can, I've got a whole heap of them if you want one. And I said, oh, all right. So, Suspicious. Yeah, so I went to work the next day. and Oh, no, the person I was with, uh, it was actually a girl I was with at the time, she knew him. I said, who was that? And she told me. And so I looked him up the next day, and sure enough, he'd just done a, um, a huge warehouse uh, burglary in... It's just raided in, Harvey Norman. Yeah, no, Kilmore, actually. <laughs> Harvey Norman wasn't around then. Uh, it was in Kil- a warehouse in Kilmore. He'd, he'd, he'd stolen a truckload of air conditioners. <laughs> it must have been, oh, God knows how much, but maybe a million bucks worth. It's kind of an impressive physical effort, though. Well, yeah, he was with other people. Oh, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. On your own. <laughs> and I went with... And that was... Uh, Wayne Pinner was a friend. Poor fellow's deceased now. He, uh, he helped me with it. I was only a constable. Uh, and we went uh, to the house... And sure enough, it's his mother's house. And there's an air conditioner in the front win- door, front window of the house. And uh, that looks familiar. Michael, he wasn't home. <laughs> and to, it was, was easy because one, that was one of the stolen air conditioners. His mum was there. Poor old thing. She was a lovely thing. But we, to make sure we got this guy, we actually took her back to the station. She was in possession of stolen goods, so we, we were entitled to do that. We didn't treat her badly or anything like that. Uh, and we, we, then the next thing he rings the police station. He says, oh, look, that, that, my mother's got nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. It was me. I took them all. And, uh, and that was an easy one. But uh, we had a little bit of an, uh, you know, leverage there by having his mother at the station. Mm. But that was, uh, that was another one. But, oh, you know, there's dozens of them. Yeah. So if we fast forward to, I think it was the early 90s and you've retired from the job. Yep. Um, what led you to that decision? Well, interestingly enough, uh, I'll, I'll throw in, I, was, I got promoted to sergeant at Flemington. Uh, mm-hmm. and that was probably the best part of my whole career. Mm-hmm. Got, got another commendation there. With the, Flemington was full of drugs at the time, drug dealers left, right and centre. Um, and myself and another guy called Gil King, sergeant also, uh, we, we had a zero tolerance policy. Just basically lock everybody up for everything. Not normal people, but just crooks. And uh, that solved that problem. And uh, that was during the Wall Street shootings period. We, we assisted the task force there as well. Mm. Uh, and then after that, um, uh, went, became a prosecutor for a period of time and then just got married for the second time. And my wife, the second wife, wanted to live in Queensland. So I resigned. I'd done about 13 or 14 years. I can't remember exactly. Mm. Uh, and moved to Queensland. But in the meantime, I'd been doing small property developments up in the country. One was at Moama in Echuca, of building little uh, duplexes and townhouses and things like that. So I was getting interested in property. And when I moved to Queensland, um, I started selling property up there. Then um, I, I got into the renovation business where I was buying units, renovating them and selling them. And then I met uh, <laughs> divorced while I was up there. And then I met the, the Tanya, the girl I'm with now, in 2005, 
and moved back to Melbourne. Mm. So I think you, you said before that after you came back to Melbourne, um, you noticed that some of your old colleagues were struggling with life after the job. Mm. Um, was that surprising? It was. It was. Because uh, up in Queensland, I didn't really know anybody from the job in those days. And I was a bit lost myself, to be honest with you. Living that lifestyle that we did was, um, I missed it. Uh, I missed the people. So I come back and started catching up with a couple of guys and I was quite amazed actually that they were struggling mentally. A couple had physical problems, heart issues and uh, maybe some various cancers and things like that. And and uh, so I, I, I thought this is, I feel fine, I still feel fine. Um, and I thought, you poor buggers, they've put on weight, they've got old, uh, they look terrible, some of them. Um, and I thought, you know, uh, on one, a couple of particular occasions, we uh, I just we had some lunches and the boys enjoyed it. And then I thought there was a, a friend come down from from Queensland, an ex-copper up there, a bloke called Bob Archibald, and he said, "Why don't you organise a lunch when I come down? We'll catch up with some of the blokes." So I did organise a Christmas lunch, and about eight or ten turned up. It was a fabulous day. We we we'd arrived at twelve. And left at about six, and it felt like five minutes had passed. Mm. And all these, it was amazing, yeah. And that was the first of a few Christmas lunches I do every year now. Yeah. So that was more like your informal sort of involvement. Yeah, um, that's how it started. And and then, and then, Dave, and I I kept in contact with those guys. And one of them, uh, uh, well, a few of them had a few problems, but nothing, you know, serious. One of them had, uh, had, had, had Rob Robinson, it's no secret this, he, he hadn't been recognised for something he'd done back in 1978, 1988. And it, we managed to organise a, to get him a Valor Award, which he got issued. Mm. And that was, I thought, that's great, I feel good, really good helping him do that. And he felt, I could see his reaction, he felt fabulous. Mm. And, uh, and then there was a, a couple of other incidents where the Christmas lunch went over really well. And then all of a sudden... Dave gets this job as the CEO of Police Veterans Victoria, and I know Dave well. And he's another guy I caught up with when I come back from Victoria, mm. uh, from Queensland. And so uh, once he got that job, he said, you want to give us a hand with that? And I said, yeah, why not? And, uh, and then I tracked down uh, uh, one of my old constables uh, called Cliff Lockwood, who was, uh, who was ve- mm, very remember, struggling badly. I his story. Yeah, yeah, he struggled quite badly. And, and he was one of my first major job. When I say job, it wasn't a job, which I went up there and caught up with him and got mm. him a bit of help. And Peter Signorato and Tracy are, doing, are following up on that now. Mm. And he's probably 80% better than what he was. Mm. That's so, all we want. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. And, and then I started realising there's quite a few others. Uh, mm. And, you know, it was quite a surprise, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, it's what Dave calls a hidden tragedy it is, a lot of yeah, the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is this just something we can't particularly see? Um, and this is exactly what we're doing. You know, we're trying to find those people um, that we just wouldn't otherwise. There are so many, I think there's at least uh, double the amount of people we've got now that it's are amazing. still out there. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And, and every day, uh, Dave and I went up to Benalla the other day and, and there's a, quite a group of retired people up there and two or three of them there come up to us in the air and saying how they, you know, they appreciated the work and, and they need, they, can they help, could we help them with a few things? Mm. So it sort of grew from there. It's one of those jobs, I'm only a volunteer, but it's the sort of thing I enjoy doing, but I'll only do it while I enjoy it. Um, it's not the sort of thing, if you had to do it, you could do. Um, uh, if I have to do it and I'm not enjoying it, I'll pull, I'll pull the pin, I won't do it anymore. Mm. And there's plenty more coming along that'll 
take up the baton and, and keep doing it. There's a lot of good will people out there. I, think I had prostate cancer myself a couple of years ago. And they, they removed the prostate. So I sort of realise now that life's pretty short. And yeah. uh, even though I've got a clear diagnosis, um, you've got to make the most of the days and months and years that you do have, uh, yeah. whether, whether you're 21 or whether you're 65 like me. Mm. Um, and it's so much more rewarding than when that time is actually used to help other people. Yeah, yeah, and you get a kick out of it. Um, yeah, you do. You don't want to pat on the back or anything, but but you just see a sense of achievement, like for Robbo and his medal and, and Cliffy. Uh, you mm. see the improvement in them, and uh, wow, I had something to do with that. You know, it's really yeah. it makes you feel good. It's yeah. really good. Um, I mean, in the in all of that time that you have spent helping us, um, what are the most kind of common themes you've noticed amongst all the police vets? Interestingly. Um, Probably, probably loss of identity, loneliness, um, obviously PTSD, that, that's, that's a common thread. Mm. Uh, but not just that. It's just, it's hard to go, on when you're retired, to go to your, your, circle, your new circle of friends. It might be a, a golf club or a bowls club or a, or a surf club and r- relate the stories that you used to do. Like I was just talking all those silly stories I just told you about. Mm. Um, if you start telling those to people at the bowls club, they get a bit bored, and they, half the time they don't believe you. They think mm. you're lying, uh, and so you just shut up. And what I find is with these guys and women, and it's quite a few women. Um, it's quite a few women had sexual assault issues in the past as well, uh, mm. which they're they're hopefully redressing now. Um, they just like to talk about what we used to do, you know, uh, and. That's why they call them more stories. Yeah, well, that's why yeah. I call more stories. It's cliched, but it mm-hmm. it's really quite simple. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned from my time in the job, I found, just relating it to now, the, the big task force jobs we worked on for months and months and months, studying and analysing and preparing things and then going out and maybe doing an arrest took so much long bullshit Sometimes it was just quicker to go and knock on the door and drag him to the police station and charge him with something that you found in his house, a pistol or something like that, which you might have found there. And I find the same with this. Mm. Rather than what we do, we call a psychologist, will we analyse him, will we get this and get that, let's just go and knock on the door and have a beer and, and, or a coffee and, and see how he's going. Um, mm. So much simpler. It I, yeah. the bullshit, basically. Well, I think it's just about starting a conversation yeah. in general, just, just yeah. as a first port of call. That's, that, and that's sometimes the same, even on the phone. Yeah, I've, I've had I've had high-ranking people I've dealt with, and I won't ever tell you the names, but uh, who have been really struggling. And these are guys. I was I only was a sergeant, and uh, but these are guys who are very high-ranking uh, who I've been talking to, and uh, they were have been not hopefully not now they're struggling, and uh, I was quite a, I felt quite strange as a sergeant talking to these blokes with high ranks uh, mm-hmm. and helping with them with their problems. They needed it and they were grateful for it, mm-hmm. um, which I don't want to be grateful, but I'm, I'm pleased that they, were, they got something from it. Mm. What, what would you say to those that are either still in the job or they're out of the job that are struggling with their mental health at the moment? Well, well it's, it's a tough one because I, I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur, but my personal experience is uh, you've got to mix with, with like-minded people, and whether they've got PTSD or not. Uh, also, the, the ones that are in the job, it's important to mix with people outside the job whilst you're in the job. What we all, we all not so much all of us, a lot of us did, we only socialised and married the people we in our job. And it became an, an issue of us and them. 
It's very insular. Yeah, very yeah. insular. So my advice, and I used to do this myself later, I would, I would mix with people outside the job as much as inside. Uh, Socialise, beers, you know, whatever. So when you do leave, you have another group to go to. Mm. You don't necessarily... I was building properties and real estate. I was dealing with builders and tradesmen and, um, um, you know, going to pubs up in the country with farmers and things like that. And uh, so I had had this outside world... But so many of them didn't, and still don't, even the ones in now. Mm. Uh, and that's my one bit of advice, is mix with people outside the job as well as inside. Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, not closing the door to mm. other opportunities mm. just because they're not within the job. And, I mean, it's funny that it's called the job yeah, um, yeah, in general because yeah, it's the yeah. only job out there. Yeah, that's right, and there's plenty of other things out there. Um, mm. and, and even, uh, you know, have a little outside interest, maybe an outside job, and you've got to declare it all these days, but maybe a little business or something on the side, which you, you are allowed to do, I believe. Mm. Uh, uh, kick one foot outside all the time. That's for the serving ones, and the, the ones that have struggled, struggling now, um, you just got to contact P- uh, police veterans, uh, Victoria, mm. uh, and the, the group's expanding. There's, there's, there's people everywhere now, and not enough. Yeah, we're finding new people all the time. Yeah, there's still not enough money either. But uh, sometimes it's not about money. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, just having a beer or a coffee with somebody mm. or organising a Christmas lunch. Or that too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if you're way up in a chuka or a banana or bloody... Mm. I, I was up in Cairns just recently and they, yeah. have, they, have, a, they have a get-together every month up there in yeah. Cairns, all Victorian couples. Yeah. Uh, so it's... Um, it's pretty amazing how many people we've mm. already found um, yeah. that all have their own individual groups. Yeah. And you can do it yourself. Sometimes you don't need police veterans. Sometimes you can do it yourself. That's yeah. what I was doing before I met... Dave again, uh, mm. uh, just doing your own little things. Some blokes in hospital, even if you don't know him, go and see him. Pop mm. in and say hello. Oh, wow. <laughs> the shock of their life. Um, Jay John. Thank you very much. It's very much I very appreciate the invitation, Carl. Yeah, most welcome. And uh, it's been very interesting. And I do waffle on, but I'm sorry about that. But, you know, if you let me go, I'll just keep talking all day. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thanks, John. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Police Veterans Victoria, or head over to our website, www.policeveteransvic.org.au. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.